welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. And today we have with us Ashley Scorpio, SVP Revenue at Levitate Foundry. But I am not doing her justice. She has about five to 10 other hats that she wears even outside of Levitate. So I'm excited to have her intro herself and all of the many organizations she helps with and spotlight a couple today. So Ashley, thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thank you, Jane, so much for having me. Yeah, I love the work I do at Levitate. And my key role day to day is as a CP of revenue, which includes marketing, of course, as well as partnerships, which also traverses partner marketing and sales. So all areas that we love to weave partners into. And of course, reach a B2B audience. We're always looking primarily to get Levitate Foundry in front of key decision makers at D2C e-commerce brands because Levitate Foundry is the largest female founded and led Shopify plus preferred agency partner in all of North America. Yeah, we have a diverse team. I've been on the leadership team at several e-commerce agencies to date. Uh, This is the third agency I've been with uh, here in the US. So I've been at it for a little while on the B2B (laughs) marketing side of things, particularly at marketing agencies. But yeah, outside of my day-to-day at Levitate, I do a couple other things that really give me life. One of those initiatives that I really love spending my evenings and weekends on is Elevate. Elevate is a accelerator program, typically a nine-week program. I have been along with them for the ride since their very first cohorts that started in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as, as when they expanded into Mississippi. And now they have Elevate cities across the U.S. And it is an accelerator program for primarily women, although it's not limited to women and people of color, primarily helping Black business owners and entrepreneurs grow their business through marketing, through partnerships, through sale, revenue, all those good things. And I typically sales and strategic partnerships to those cohorts of business owners. And last week was a lot of fun. We actually had our pitch competition with our top five contestants from the last cohort, as well as their graduation ceremony. So yeah, amazing. It's been a really cool program to be a part of. It was amazing. And the Our Village United is a nonprofit who actually goes ahead and runs these programs for business owners, but they now have backing from MasterCard. And that's why they were able to expand the program uh, nationwide from coast to coast. So yeah, like I said, it's been really exciting to be part of, of those programs. Yeah. How many years now have you been part of this? Yes. So I want to say it's about three years at this point. Cool. And that's not the only accelerator program that I actually teach at. Similarly, I also teach sales and strategic partnerships to the Fearless Fund accelerator program. And yeah, the Fearless Fund does focus on women of color. So again, a little bit more niche. But again, we need to ensure that women are able to raise capital alongside others in the business arena and successfully launch and scale their businesses. Because historically, a minuscule fraction of available capital actually goes to female-founded or female-led enterprises. So it's extremely important that we support each other as women in business and talk about these tools and tactics and strategies and some of these communities and cohorts to support each other. 
Similarly, at Levitate Foundry in January this year, we launched a free online community called Levitate Founders for women in business, particularly if they have any challenges in marketing, we can support them on, again, just for women to network with each other, lift each other up, perhaps collaborate. You know, there's always room for collaboration, even in business. So, Yeah, that's amazing, especially... We were talking before we turned the mics on, but in these times, as I'm sure everyone says nonstop every day, but 2023 is a doozy. So everyone can use all the help and education and training and guidance that they can get right now. Definitely. And that's why I think it is important to, you know, have many different projects perhaps that you work on and ways of interweaving them. So, you know, outside of my day-to-day at Levitate and teaching via these funds or nonprofit accelerator programs, you have to walk the talk, right? So I also angel invest. And so I'm always interested, particularly in hearing from female founders or founders of color that are looking to scale their business, perhaps at the seed level or friends and family round. You know, so I primarily invest either in B2B SaaS or in B2C e-commerce or MarTech ad tech, because that is my area of expertise where I can hopefully add extra support and insights for the founders because you know, similarly, I advise. And so that's a great way we can help each other grow. So yeah, some great tools in the space that we also partner with at Levitate. Uh, example, EcoCart and Arca are two examples of like angel investments I've made. And then advisory roles include partner programs. So that's cool. for partners within e-commerce. Yeah. So you got into EcoCart in the beginning. Very cool. Someone from my team went over to EcoCart. So that's, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. Again, I think it's really important to weave your mission into your work. Big reason why I joined Levitate, I care a lot about our mission of furthering and supporting women in e-commerce and in business, just like the same reason why I work with those particular funds and accelerator programs. And similarly, EcoCart was an interesting investment to me because of their mission of sustainability. Yeah. I have so many questions for you and we haven't even dived into the marketing side of things yet. But first, it seems like you're really conscious of where you invest your time and money and resources of all kinds and where just what you choose to bring onto your plate and into your world. When did you become conscious of that? Because I think a lot of of people and and women in in marketing, we just kind of follow the next path or we're just focused on the size of the company and getting into a certain brand. But I don't see as many. Sadly, I think myself included yet. (laughs) But I do want to be more conscious of this, just where the ethical component of things and what makes a bigger impact. So if you could talk a little bit about how you became more conscious and how you are able to make those decisions so so carefully. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we all need to be thinking about corporate social responsibility and sustainability, particularly as we navigate this climate crisis, you know, as people and humans on this little blue rock (laughs) in the void. But for me, at least, I think I've worked in the public sector and the nonprofit sectors before joining and Mm. moving over to the dark side of the private sector. And (laughs) so I core. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So I've been really civic minded for a long time. Before my journey in SAS and the Bay Area and, and coming to the United States and the West Coast or the best coast as some my purports <laughs> and working in e-commerce and on the agency side, I worked in politics for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I actually worked for the former prime minister of Canada 
his chief of staff. I worked for the Secretary of State. I was the most senior aide for the Parliamentary Secretary for International Affairs and International Trade for many years. So yeah, I definitely, and I'm from Canada originally, for anyone wondering, so slightly different arena, but similar motivations, if you will, as most public servants and politicos might have. And so, yeah, I used to work every day trying to think of what can we do for Canadians today? How can we make their lives better? How can we serve people, young people, marginalized people, anyone who's underserved, any of these different groups? And so that's definitely something I thought about a lot, especially being efficient and mindful and respectful of taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Similarly, Levitate, my technical background as a marketer is media buying. So whenever I've worked with clients on the agency side, I'm always thinking about the efficiency of their marketing ad dollars and how we are getting them the return on their investment and ad spend that they're looking to see. Yeah, that's amazing. So I want to dive a little bit into your career path because 10 years in politics and nonprofit experience before really diving into this side of marketing. And when you were in the political arena, were you also on the marketing side as well? Or yeah, let me just pause and not try to tell your story. Tell us your career path and how did you first get into B2B marketing? Where did that all begin? Yes. So interesting question. So so I would say I've always been a storyteller, right? And politics is all about storytelling, right? You are explaining why you should care about these issues or these people or these communities or the country or whatever it might be, the region, the environment, et cetera, other people in the community, things like that. Think people you might not necessarily relate to. And similarly, the in direct to consumer e-commerce, we're typically selling a product or perhaps a service or a subscription. In politics, you are selling a platform or an agenda. So you are communicating those ideas to constituents and hopefully voters that you can mobilize and get out. And so I always say that when it comes to consumers here in the U.S., even in these odd volatile times that we have right now where people perhaps are pulling a little bit back on consumer spending, typically people have more than just $1 to spend on a product or a service. They might treat themselves on a Thursday or a Friday or what have you. Tuesday. In, yeah, <laughs> what, every day. Why not? Self-care is extremely important. But when it comes to a voter, typically, if it's above board and you're doing it right, you only have one vote. Hmm. So I think that if you can successfully convince an undecided voter to care and to get on board with what it is and the ideas and platform that you're peddling and why they should care and trying to circumvent all the apathy that comes in the political arena and actually manage to get them out to vote after you have convinced them that selling a product or service that can make your life better or is fun or something you like or tells a good brand story or has value propositions, that is a lot easier than garnering that one vote. So I yeah. think I would say I could sell ice to the Inuit. <laughs> yeah. At least I'd like to think so. Yeah, because of your background. That's so interesting. And so from politics, how did you make the pivot from politics into the world of B2B? Was your first switch into the agency side? Yes. Good question. So Outside of my day-to-day in political offices and working for a political party and things like that, I always worked on campaigns. 
And mm. also to further answer your question, if I was doing marketing and politics, we might not call it marketing, but that's what it is. There are typically oh, sure. three types of political operators. There's perhaps the policy wonk, the communications person, which is really the marketing person, which is the yeah. type of roles that I had, which you might also think of as public relations or government relations or things like that. And then typically you also have what in the private sector and on the agency side, we might call a data scientist. But back in the day, that terminology didn't really exist. And we would consider this to be sort of the number cruncher who's looking at polls and looking yeah. at mobilization and, and things like that. So yeah, those are the three primary types of political animals as far as operators go, at least on the campaign side. And so yeah, yeah inclusive of campaigns, I worked in politics for 10 years. I worked on Parliament Hill for about seven full years. And so yeah, I was typically always in the communications role, although I do have a strong background in public policy in those two areas that I mentioned earlier, particularly international trade. And um, yeah, I think it's all communication, right? Speech writing, talking points, interviews, yeah. prepping for debates, debate prep. Those are all the sorts of things that I did in those types wow. of roles. Writing the copy for uh, campaigns or slogans, helping working with designers to design imagery or ads, yeah. even old school, like in postcards, which direct mail, newspapers, things like oh, that. Yeah. That Huge is all politics. marketing. Yeah, definitely different channels. But it's at the end of the day, it's all the same thing. And I was very early as a millennial, I was early on social media. So I was actually pretty active on Facebook and Twitter back in 2008. And I brought it back. And you know, people in the American political arena might think about the 2008 Obama campaign as when FMS really became big in politics. Well, it didn't really come to Canada until a few years later. But wow. there are a number of digital marketing channels that became more and more entrenched in politics over the years, whether that was social media, organic social media, paid social media, whether that was direct mail, whether that was other lifecycle channels like email. Email is a huge fundraising channel for campaigns and for elected officials to reach yeah. their constituents. So yeah, those are all things I did in that sector. And of course, when I came over to sort of do this full time outside of these public figures and campaigns in my own consultancy, I came to the US in 2015 and I started working at WPromote, which is of yeah. course a performance digital marketing agency. And I, I did paid social media marketing for a lot of their clients, cool. particularly on the SaaS side. Yeah, whereas everyone at that time was kind of focused on e-com, we had a handful of SaaS clients. And so, yeah, I did a lot of Twitter advertising and LinkedIn advertising, because of course the channels for B2B yeah. are slightly different from let's say B2C or D2C. For sure. Ashley, I might pick your brain after the call for some help with Twitter ads <laughs> on the B2B SaaS space. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, happy to. Yeah, at one point, I actually was running a ton of ads for a SaaS client in the Bay Area on LinkedIn Leads Accelerator before they actually sunsetted yeah. that program. So that was really fun, too. You know, it's the rise and fall of different SaaS marketing tools and platforms and placements. We all oh, have to yeah. try and stay ahead of the curve as marketers. So, yeah. Changes nonstop. Amazing. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. If you remember, if not, don't worry, we can cut this. But do you, you mentioned that one of your many responsibilities in your political background was slogans. Do you remember any slogan that you're particularly proud of? Not a slogan per se that 
was officially adopted by a campaign, although I was the campaign chair, citywide campaign chair for a number of campaigns. But even as an on-the-ground sort of grassroots activist, I scribbled many different things on placards and posters back in my day as like a youth activist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a really interesting debate. And maybe this is sort of inside baseball from a parliamentary perspective. So this might not make sense to an American audience. But we were talking about gun control. And uh, mm -hmm. I had a placard that said, you can't bring a whip to a gunfight. Because of course, a whip in parliamentary setting is there's a whip for each party. And ah. when they whip the votes, they force everyone to vote the same way along the party lines as opposed to voting their conscience. And along those lines. Yeah. So I said, you can't bring a whip to a gunfight. <laughs> Love you know, it. let people vote their yeah. own values, what represents their constituents yeah. for such an important issue as opposed to just forcing everyone to toe the line. Yeah. Good for you. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing a ton of that. It's a, a world I know nothing about, but it's fascinating. It's also, it's interesting to me, but it does make sense from a branding angle why, or maybe I'm wrong on this, but why they don't really call these positions marketing or a marketer of any sort on the political team because that, that has an icky feeling in the political arena, right? I suppose so. And mind you, I was the first ever official community manager for the political party that I'm affiliated with in Canada. So a couple years back, they actually created their first ever digital operations unit, which didn't previously exist, right? Yeah. The crown jewel of a political party is usually their political operations or polyops, as some people might call it. And of course, eventually they had to split off some of these specialties Especially if you're a certified media buyer, that is a very different specialty than maybe one of those number crunchers that's looking at polls and mobilizations, right? These are different key areas that you need experts in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was the first ever community manager for the largest political party in Canada. And I used to manage social media for the former prime minister and his wife. And I wow. launched many different channels. Yeah. So no I, pressure. Launched, uh, that's huge. <laughs> I launched her Pinterest <laughs> and her Instagram and it was a lot of fun engaging with Canadians on those types of channels. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that still maybe typically wouldn't be called a marketing role. It was like community manager, which is, of course, yeah. a marketing role. But uh, that was just the foray into that. It's so funny just how they have to have a different twist to it to remove that ick factor. So it's community manager and communications and probably engagement. I'm sure all of these terms are used. So interesting, but you're right. It's, it's apples mm -hmm. to apples, the responsibilities and the end result you're looking for. So interesting. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing that you touched on earlier, I'm going to rewind a bit. I wrote down, you are an angel investor in a lot of these, well, the organizations themselves perhaps, but also when they have these pitch competitions that you partake in can be an angel investor. How did you get into that? And how does that typically work? It might be different at each one, but is there an advisory role? Is it typically just funding or yeah, tell us a little bit more about that side of things. Definitely. So I actually went to my first ever TechCrunch 50 back in 2008. And back in the day, TechCrunch was one of the premier tech conferences mm -hmm. uh, in the world, but definitely in the Bay Area. And I had the pleasure there of assisting on the marketing side with, at the time, so the way TechCrunch worked, it, it's basically a pitch competition. There's three days. And basically, they invite startups to apply from all over the world and pitch everyone there and try and garner investment, support, interest, et cetera, advisors, things like that. And of course, PR and hopefully some great earned media. And so 
you basically are invited to apply. If you're accepted, you launch your beta at the show. This is how the format used to work. And I actually went to do marketing with the only Canadian startup that was actually accepted to oh. present at TechCrunch 50 in 2008. So yeah. that was a really interesting time. We did a lot of marketing on site and guerrilla marketing. It kind of went viral, at least in the, the Twitterverse of Bay Area at that time. It was very yeah. interesting. We were disqualified from the competition because our marketing was so good and so effective that people complained so much about it that finally they had just annoyed Jason Kalkanis to the point of drunkenly just saying they're DQ'd just I don't want to hear about it anymore so wow the drama (laughs) putting on our marketing hats what did we do we reached out to all these bloggers and media contacts that we had been nurturing for months at this point we wrote a press release saying we won the coveted first ever Jason Kalkanis disqualification award. (laughs) And of course that created even more buzz. So it's one of those situations, you know, you make lemonade out of lemon. Yeah. Love that. That's amazing. And that got you kind of the first taste of the pitch competition world and the opportunities of angel investing. Is that kind of the parallel path? Like that was your first entry into that world? say so yeah and then at that point onward i was typically always consulting on the marketing side with startups so i started basically consulting on the marketing side with startups back in 2008 after my first tech crunch i was basically hooked and then my sister is actually a female founder in the bay area so her company ipo'd recently in december she also has a strong yeah definitely (laughs) she has a very proud of her and her accomplishments but she is a strong mission-driven focus of sustainability. And yeah, so her company's mission is to remove cars from the road by car sharing and reduce our carbon footprint that way. So yeah, that has been her mission for many, many years. What's the name of her company? Let's give her a little plug. Yeah, it's called Get Around. You can find it on getaround.com. You can also download the app in the app store, either on iPhone or Android. And uh, yeah, if you don't use your car often and you want to make some extra money, you can rent out your car on the app. It's like Airbnb for cars. Love it. So smart. And that probably gave you some visibility into the flip side of angel investing, right? Like her needing angel investors and learning how that works on both ends. She has gone through many rounds of fundraising on the road to IPO, of course, has garnered investments from some of the heaviest hitters on the globe, including SoftBank, for example. And yeah, I mean, very proud of her and everything she's accomplished. It's definitely a daily inspiration. And I was just very happy to at least be along for the journey on the sidelines, supporting and, you know, (laughs) periodically her background is also marketing. So other than being co-founder for the company, she was CMO for many years. And definitely we bounce ideas off each other all the time and pick each other's brains. And so there are many different get around campaigns I've had the pleasure of talking through with her or consulting on. Love it. And to wrap up the angel investing side, because I'm just so interested in it. Do you, is it kind of similar to how like the relationship you're talking about with your sister here, if you invest financially in one of these companies that you come across, I'm sure there's also like a, an advisory component typically where you also give your advice and vice versa. Like they pivot or put ideas off of you for echoing, but yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, it can definitely go either way. If you're asked to advise, you perhaps might be given equity. If you invest, you probably 
proactively want to advise anyway. So uh, it just depends how the relationship was started. I think oftentimes one of the reasons why you might invest in a company in the first place is because you've built a relationship with the founder over years and maybe admired them from afar or what it is they're doing mm. or building. Outside of marketing and partner marketing, I've worked in partnerships for many years. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of these people that I have now decided to take the plunge with in an advisory capacity or otherwise are people I've partnered with across the ecosystem. Ah, smart. So people who branch out and create their own product or platform from your partnership world, which is a perfect pivot because I'd also love to touch base on that, which is how we even know each other, Ashley, is through the partnership side of things. Can you tell us a little bit about partner marketing partnerships? Because there's definitely two different sides there. It seems like you oversee both, right? The sales component of partnerships and then the marketing and co-marketing side, but how that's going and what you see as the strengths of that or what right now you're struggling with perhaps in that world. Yeah, no, I mean, I ended up in partnerships by accident. So I originally came to an agency specifically to do marketing as a marketer and support clients directly on their campaigns, particularly on paid social, like I mentioned. And I hate that it's called soft skills, but partnerships is generally thought of soft skills and relationship management. And I think I drew on my years in the public sector and diplomacy and foreign affairs, because at the end of the day, it's building relationships with people from all walks of life and all different backgrounds and understanding how you can help each other and support each other. So, you know, for anyone who has seen New Amsterdam, if anyone likes that show, you know, the, the title figure always says, how can I help? And so honestly, that's the best way to approach any potential partnership is from a support role rather than trying to extract value, but rather to provide value. And the way that works with partner marketing specifically is amplification. This is the one perhaps instance where one plus one isn't two, it could be 10. So if you're going to run a lead generation campaign because you're in B2B marketing for an agency or otherwise, or you're going to create a gated content piece to generate leads, or you're going to host a webinar, why not co-host it with a partner? Why not co-promote it with multiple partners? Why not have partners help do the heavy lifting and contribute some of the content? It becomes a win-win-win for all three parties involved. Now, that might seem counterintuitive because you think, Ashley, what three parties? We're talking about your organization or or company or business or brand and the partner's organization. Absolutely. But there's also your audience or your client base or your prospective client base or their customer base. So if you are creating, let's say, a gated ebook to help both of you garner leads and hopefully drum up some new business, hopefully you're also creating an excellent piece of high quality content that both of your audiences can benefit from and actually also garner some significant insights and value from. So Again, mm-hmm. I think just being cognizant, and that is definitely the name of the game in content marketing is thinking about who your audience is, what they want, how and when you can or should reach them, which channels you should leverage, etc. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said just there. It's I know one consistent in my career, though I've been in various industries and the roles have changed a bit. But one thing that has been consistent at every company is partner marketing being a strong, one of the top channels of bringing in pipeline. It works every time. What the partnership looks like and who you're partnering with will change depending on your company. But partner marketing, just the only way, not the only way, a huge, easy, low cost way to triple your, your reach. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I mean, most of the time it's about the same amount of effort or perhaps even less 
because you have a yeah. great partner who's also digging in and rolling up their sleeves with you. Hopefully, hopefully. Some hopefully. aren't so great and, sometimes, right? <laughs> well, that is also how you determine whether or not it's a good fit as a partnership and whether or not so you true. have the buy-in you need and the resourcing you need internally and externally. And of course, you should always do a post-mortem after a campaign launch yeah. to compare notes and see, hopefully not, but you never know what went wrong, what could yeah. we do better, what would we change, what will we perhaps do instead next time. So yeah, those are all things you should actively communicate internally and externally with your partners. And also something you should think about what the partner appetite is for these types of initiatives. But yeah, in my previous role at the last agency I was with, I did about 20 to 30 co-mark initiatives with partners each month. Wow, Obviously, we huge. had a plethora of partners in order to support that. We had over 2,500 partners, and not everyone has a partner program of that scale and size. But don't be daunted. Start small and maybe build from there. How did you ramp up to that many co-marketing initiatives per month. That's just so many. How did you juggle it all and keep your audiences segmented? Yeah, well, I had a whole team at its peak in my last organization, last role, we had about eight women on the partner team, oh, including nice. dedicated roles in partner marketing. Oftentimes you might have partner marketing handled by the marketing team. You yeah. might over time, as you continue to ramp up and grow, have a dedicated partner marketing resource specifically that sits on the partner team. These are, again, all things you should think about when you're thinking about your structure internally and what your needs sort of call for. Yeah. They also might be things you adjust over time based on failures or successes. So yeah, it is definitely a team effort, not only with the internal team, but like I said, the external partner team. I do think that's one of the number one things to think about with a partnership. First of all, not every partner has the appetite or the aptitude to take part in co-marketing initiatives. Yeah. Some partnerships are referral only partnerships or yeah. account mapping or sales only. Some are more passive. Some are more of a co-selling relationship. Some are co-marketing only. So yeah. I think when you are onboarding perhaps a net new partner, building a relationship with them, you should always determine whether or not they make sense to pursue co-marketing yeah. initiatives with. Start small build from there. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Start with one campaign or initiative and then sort of go from there. And as with anything that you're looking to scale and nourish and flourish and grow over time. Yeah. I wonder, it's so true. Every partnership relationship or partner relationship is just so different. And the team and your counterparts vary so much and their, their goals and what they want to do, or if they're, like you said, referral only, or if they focus on co-marketing, they do everything. It's just so interesting. But have you seen, this could be, this is just what I've noticed lately myself, and it could just be my own perspective alone. But with the layoffs that have been happening the past six plus months, really more like a year now, right? Is that I see a lot of partner teams being let go. I don't know if that's skewed because I have so many partnership teams in my LinkedIn or connected my world there, but I just, it seems like so many companies are cutting there. And I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on why that would be? Because to me, it blows my mind. I would never cut partner marketing. That's our core. <laughs> I am completely on the same page as you. I see it every day, if definitely every week, yeah. if not every day, unfortunately, for the better part of at least half a year now. I think it is an unfortunate side effect of the broader trend of layoffs across the industry and the market downturn and slowdown. I also think we've seen a lot of changes in tech more broadly. And you know, on the agency side, a lot of our partners are those fast technology partners that 
provide typically MarTech ad tech platforms that we leverage on behalf of our clients. So yeah, yeah it's been extremely unfortunate. Oftentimes you're sort of starting from scratch. If you lose your main point of contact at a partner organization, yes. especially if they don't have a new dedicated partner contact or they've sort of dropped that function, things can die off really quickly. The one thing I would say, we are an extremely close knit ecosystem and we are yeah. all interconnected. And so these are person to person relationships that span across organizations. So, you know, yeah. even with your day-to-day -day organization, I have been partnered with Justuno now at three different agencies, for example. Yeah. And if I, in the future, am at a different agency, guess what? We're going to be a Justuno <laughs> partner. This Unless is why partner marketing matters, everyone. <laughs> 100%. Unless it, for whatever reason, I go to a completely different industry and the tool doesn't fundamentally make sense for our customer or client base. Yeah. We're going to be partners. If I go to another yeah. performance digital marketing e-com focus agency, we're going to be a Justuno partner. That's yeah. priority, right? And so similarly, there are people that I have worked with. I've been at three different agencies. They've been at three to five different SaaS companies and the relationship carries. So yeah. as much as you might lose the point of contact at one, they will soon pop up elsewhere. That's really good one point. good thing. However, to dig into what you're saying a bit more, I completely agree with you. It's extremely alarming, generally speaking, to see the partner functionality cut or one of the places that uh, are being cut. And I think one of the reasons for that is lack of executive buy-in or understanding. Yeah. What I yeah. mean by that, very few companies would try and run a business without a CEO or a CFO or a CMO, God forbid, because we're marketers. But there is not a standard let's say CPO for chief partner officer. This is not a standard defined functional role at the executive level. So true. Now, I have had the pleasure of elevating partnerships to getting a seat at the table and being on the executive team in more than one organization at the point, having proven out the concept and showing the revenue and the results. But because it's not a standardized role, and you know, a lot of people in partnerships think the decade of partnerships be began in 2015. That's not too long ago, right? So it's still yeah. an evolving function. Many organizations don't have dedicated partner points of contact or teams. They might either have a salesperson or a VP of sales assisting in the one sense. They might have some marketing people doing it in the other sense. And they might be scratching the surface of just bits and pieces of what a partnership could be. That's yeah. not a bad thing. You have to start somewhere. But ultimately why I think I see these things these roles or these departments being so adversely affected is because there isn't an executive buy-in and because businesses have for decades succeeded, although perhaps not thrived beyond their wildest dreams with what everything is possible with a you know, flourishing partner ecosystem and network, they don't necessarily view it as a must-have. They perhaps think of it yeah. as a nice-to-have. That's what I've been thinking too. And I, you're right. I, I don't even realize this, how young partner marketing is and partnerships in general. That's so fascinating to just have that refresher. Like, so some people just aren't as bought into it. So it's a lot of, it's on the partner marketing person or the head of marketing to explain this and to get that buy-in from the executive team. So it's just, exactly. Yeah. I'm seeing, you're right. They just don't see the value. It's, it's lack of understanding, but I'm sure they'll see the impact as soon as they make that cut. <laughs>
Maybe that's a learning, <laughs> a learning point for the exec teams, the result of the aftermath. Definitely. That is the flip side of the coin. It isn't pretty, like lifting up a rock and seeing what's underneath. It might be yeah. pretty gnarly, depending on what you find and some creepy crawlies. And uh, <laughs> I've definitely seen several organizations reverse course on this, but they, yeah, you know, some don't know what they don't know, or they don't realize the overall impact. Because again, one of the other issues beyond executive buy-in is attribution. So not only are you sourcing revenue from partners, but partners are often giving you an assist, if you will, and they're mm -hmm. influencing revenue. And that is extremely hard to track, partner influence yeah. deals. And yeah. so oftentimes, again, they don't realize this and they don't realize how much work and effort and energy goes into weaving those relationships and asking for those assists from partners and getting a little bump here and there or direct introduction, et cetera. And so they don't realize what they've got until it's gone. <laughs> yeah. So true. Sometimes you have to learn things the hard way, I guess, but we are both Definitely. big partnerships fans. So, <laughs> and you also, if you could tell me a little bit about your structure, so it's partnerships, marketing and sales roll up under you heading revenue. How does it work overseeing all three? And have you found this being a positive having three under the same person? Definitely. So I've been building toward this for the past several years in many different roles. And why I love having all three roll into one person is this way we can weave partners into everything. First of all, we of course have all of our own dedicated standalone marketing. But again, most all of our marketing campaigns and efforts could benefit from being promoted and we can increase the reach by involving partners in these initiatives. Mm. Similarly, in sales, we can get more leads and garner more revenue from partner referrals and also partner influence revenue. And then of course, partnerships itself, by rolling up into the same as those other two, there's just a lot more collaboration across the teams and departments. So you're sort of breaking down these silos. So you realize at the end of the day, we're all on team growth or team revenue, and that's what we're here to do. I also think it makes a lot of sense too, because often partner managers, even partner marketing managers carry a quota of some kind, mm -hmm. whether it is leads, whether it is referrals, whether it is number of partner campaigns, events, webinars, etc. You know, whatever it might be, depending on yeah. your specific role. And it so I think exactly. So yeah, because because attribution is a problem, it should be something that we're constantly seeking to solve. Love that. So interesting. I do see a lot of teams rolling up to revenue now as the, the title. So it's just interesting to learn a bit about that. So Ashley, tell me what is a few last questions before we wrap up. What is your favorite tool? Or I know we're talking MarTech stack a lot. And what's your favorite tool of the moment? MarTech or oh, not? Oh, interesting. <laughs> sure, sure. So one tool that I love, particularly when it comes to collaboration with partners is uh, Partner Hub. So it's not only a PRM, aka a CRM for partners, but it also helps you track all of these collaboration campaigns and tools and referrals and things. And full disclosure, it is a tool that I do advise the founder of. Ah. But part of the reason this came to be was because of some of the frustrations I was having with other existing tools. So, you know, that was pretty beautiful to see that come to light and come to market oh. and continue to evolve as a product. And then I think another tool that's really exploded over the course of the pandemic that I use daily, especially in a remote organization, is Slack. Yes. And not just internally, but definitely externally. So we have at least 20 or 30 shared channels with partners yeah. within yes. our Slack. I have direct DMs going with 20 plus partner managers at other organizations to coordinate 
these dinners and webinars and things that we are co-hosting and co-promoting. And then similarly, you know, because Slack is not only vertical, it's also horizontal. Like I said, we launched an external community uh, for founders called Levitate Founders. So we also use Slack for that. And so it's a nice way to pop in there and keep in constant communication with people. Nice. Yes. I could not live without Slack at this point. Slack is my new email. I do not email. If anyone needs to get in touch with me, send me a message on LinkedIn or Slack me. (laughs) That's the best way. Yep, absolutely. It's the evolution. Yeah, so true. I was at a conference recently and someone said the DM is the new inbox. And I was like, "Mm, for me, it's Slack. Slack is the new inbox. (laughs) But that is a DM. Oh, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Back in my day and our day, like it was IMs, right? Like AIM. So it's, oh, I got IMed. I definitely still say I am by accident sometimes. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) So funny. Do you have a favorite book or podcast or anything that you're reading or listening to right now? Oh, so many things. Um, I just finished listening to the classic audio version of how to win friends and influence people. So definitely a good one. I also love Brene Brown. So literally anything by Brene Brown. Most recently, I was reading Atlas of the Heart. Mm -hmm. But another fantastic book that I love actually written by a friend of mine. It's called Beyond Happiness. She is the former speaking of weaving mission into your work and building culture and productivity and also ensuring a work-life balance for people. She is the former CEO of Delivering Happiness. She also helped collaborate on that book. If anyone has read Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, the late Tony Shea, she also recently wrote the book about beyond happiness and how we can find happiness and balance in our careers and beyond. So that is by Jen Lim for anyone who wants to check it out. We'll put the link to that and also the organizations that you mentioned and you work with the pitch competitions and everything. We'll put all those links in show notes. That would be great. Awesome. Yeah. As a (laughs) sign off, Ashley, what is your one key to fellow women in B2B marketing? I think be creative. A lot of people think B2B marketing needs to be really dry and uptight. And at the end of the day, yes, you're reaching organizations, but ultimately, at least for now, until the AI fully takes over, (laughs) you're reaching people. And so, yes, you might not be as informal or you might not leverage slang in your B2B marketing campaigns. But at the end of the day, think about how you can help and solve problems for the people you are reaching within an organization. Still talk to them like they're real people, even if it's a white paper you're promoting. So, yeah, that would just be my little caveat to the B2B marketing. It doesn't have to be dry. It can be really interesting and engaging. Yeah. I love that. It's funny that we need that reminder, right? But we do. It's like everyone needs that poster on their wall or something if they're in B2B marketing. (laughs) Yeah. Who is your audience? Who are you talking to? What is their profile? You know, what does that sound like? Yeah. Or big poster that says they're people. (laughs) Yes. They're people too. They are people too. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. (laughs) Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today and chatting through. I mean, your career journey is so inspiring and interesting. It's just really cool to learn the political side of things and how that can evolve into the world of of marketing and B2B. So thank you for sharing with us and touching on partnerships. Appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. And we will see you next time. Remember to like, review, share, show us all the love. We appreciate it. It gets us more visibility the more you review. So thanks everyone. See you next time. Bye.